There are things in this world that seems right, innocent, and is never questioned, even by believers, yet are evil. There are certain things that we think we own, have control of, and understand. Yet in reality, we don't own, control it, nor understand it. And so we find ourselves inadvertently or advertently pretending to own it, pretending to have control over it and pretending to understand. And we may even then find ourselves doing that to the very things that are reserved to be understood by God, owned by God and controlled by our Lord. And if we do that, do we not risk finding ourselves in a position where we play God? I want to submit to you, brothers and sisters, that this happens in various degrees within various topics. And today it's important for us to talk about some of these things so that we can walk in faith and give to the Lord his portion as he has given to us ours. I would like to start off by just looking at what the definition of pretension actually is. The dictionary says it's a claim to something or behavior, speech or writing that is artificial and designed to impress. So something that isn't true that we make our own in order to impress people or we claim something as our own that isn't ours. But I want to submit to you that you can also have pretension without intention. You can pretend to have ownership or understanding of something without actually realizing that you don't understand what you think you understand or own what you think you own. And so in this episode, we're going to talk about some of these things that are common in the world, such as boasting of tomorrow, the wealth in the world and who do all things really belong to the second coming, as well as the swearing of oaths. James picks this up in chapter four, verse 13, where he speaks about the boasting of tomorrow. And he says this, come now, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? you're amidst, you appear for a little while and then you vanish. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it for him, it is sin. Well, like this is amazing, right? How often do we speak in this way? This is like everyday speech for everyone. Tomorrow, I'm going to go do that. Next year, I'm going to go do that. Next month, I'm going to go and do that. This is how we speak. And he says, this is this is evil. It's evil to speak in this way. But yet I want to submit to you, it's arrogant because you don't have control over many things. You don't have control of the weather. You don't have control over your life, whether you will even breathe the next second. You don't have control. So when you say, well, tomorrow I'm going to do this and this and that, and I'm going to what you're stating is I control 
I have understanding. I own the day. And therefore, I will do. But what you don't understand then is that, no, you, you don't control what you think you control. You don't own the day. God does. He controls and he's the only one who has understanding as to what you will actually really be doing tomorrow and whether you will actually do what you are setting out to do. And so that is why James tells us, make sure that when you talk about the future, which we are allowed to do that, you have to include as the Lord wills or as the Lord permits, you have to give acknowledgement to his glory, that he has ownership over these things. And you make plans, but he has ownership and control as to all of the factors in life that will determine whether those plans come to fruition. And so I want to submit that it's important to empty ourselves of pretension of thinking that we have any knowledge or control over what tomorrow may bring us. But I also think it's important for me to also speak to the other danger of this whole thing. If you include God in your speech, which is good to say, as God permits, I will do this and that. Yet you go then when the day arrives and you are the one who do do not wish to uphold your word that you have given someone. Do not dare using God as your cop out, as your excuse for not fulfilling your word. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Anything more is evil. In other words, if I say let's just make an example here, I have kids and I tell them, hey, kids, tomorrow we're going to go and get ice cream if God allows us. That would be a godly statement. But if tomorrow comes and I feel lazy, I feel like I don't want to take the kids to get ice cream. And I say, no, we're not doing that anymore. You see how not only have I failed my children in upholding my word, but I've also failed them in misrepresenting the Lord. Because it would be good and fair if circumstances happened that didn't allow us to get ice cream. If the the weather is so bad, it would be dangerous to travel. Or if if if, if, a, if a certain circumstance occurred, but if it's in my control, I need to fulfill my word and not blame God for when I don't inadvertently or advertently. So I just wanted to to give the two sides of this that we have to acknowledge that God is the one who has the final determination since he's in control. But when he has made the way, we then, if we have promised, if we have made commitments, we have to be men and women of our word. The next one I want to speak about here today is how James goes now to speak to the rich. And he says this now, come, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotten and your garments are moth eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
Okay, now he's speaking of a rich person. He's starting to lay out some context of what he means. So let's let's look carefully at the sins of the rich man here being talked about. And he says in verse four, behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you have kept back by fraud are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. All right. So I think what's important is when we read this, these words, it can be easy to think, wow, is it like a huge sin to be wealthy? Like God, it sounds really like God is is speaking negatively about to the rich people, to the wealthy, you rich, you should weep, you know, talk of this nature. But we have to look at the context and we have to to answer this question of is it actually a sin to be well off financially? First, we see that the certain rich man being talked about here is using his riches, using the blessings that God has given him in this life for the purpose of evil. We see for a few things. He actually says the evidence of the evil of this rich man is the corrosion of his silver and gold. Now think about that. That's an interesting statement. What what causes things to corrode? When we store things up, when we when we accumulate, 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 then there is corrosion that starts coming in. And he he explains further what that is. He says specifically that this rich man has been keeping back wages from his laborers. In other words, he has people working for him and he's not paying them their salaries or not even paying them on time because he's rather accumulating money for himself instead. He goes on and he says that he is a murderer of the righteous. What, What does that mean? Well, we can think of many examples in life of that. I mean, in fact, unfortunately, it is that the rich, the extremely wealthy in this world have a name for themselves of this kind of oppression. Now, this let me state before we go further. This is not all, as we can obviously know, there are rich people of various degrees. So just because you have wealth, does not determine your character. But when you do have wealth, it opens you up to the risk of wealth corrupting your heart when you start serving it. And so some examples of the wealthy murdering the righteous is, for example, how they could take advantage of the court systems in order to defraud others or how they would use the courts to take advantage of the misfortune of others. Uh, One example of this could be people who are renters and the landlords coming and not actually taking care of the renters, not fixing problems and and using fees and and malpractice to burden those who are financially vulnerable, who could take no action against the rich to just then plainly answer the question, is it wrong to be blessed in wealth in this world? Well, let's look at Abraham. We see that Abraham in Genesis 24, verse 35, it says the Lord has greatly blessed my master and he has become great. He has given him flocks, herds, silver, gold, 
Male servants, female servants, camels and donkeys. So we see that Aram is blessed. God has given him silver and gold. But that silver and gold did not corrode because he submitted these things at the Lord's feet. Do you remember even Melchizedek, how Abraham came to Melchizedek and he gave him a tenth? Right. So we know that his heart was for the Lord, giving to the Lord's service, to the Lord's work and however the Lord directed him. Let's look at another example of Cornelius, Acts 10, verse 1. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a really wealthy man, of course. Then, so he's it's then spoken of him as being a devout man who feared God with all of his household, giving alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. So, wow, this is a man who is wealthy is well off, who's blessed, but yet he feared God with his entire household. He gave alms generously to the people. So he was meeting needs of people. He was caring for people. He was giving hope to people. He was he was being Jesus to people. And and so he was being known. That's why the scriptures even write of him in this way, which how amazing is it that he was known in this manner? Like it it warms my heart, right? Like Wow. And then we know what happens later, like with Cornelius. God sees Cornelius being such an honorable man and steward of the gift of God. Like, wow, like how precious is that? And God sends Peter to Cornelius, fills Cornelius in his house with the Holy Spirit. Like Cornelius is a man after God's own heart and Cornelius is a wealthy man. Like how awesome of an example. And so I want to submit to you, brothers and sisters, that God isn't as concerned with wealth or poverty, but rather he's concerned most with our righteousness and justice. He's looking to what we do with what we do or don't have. But wealth and riches do bring a heightened risk and responsibility to steward what has been given to us well, to whom much has been given, much is required. And one more thing to remember then is let's not pretend that that which God has blessed us with belongs to us. Let's not be disillusioned to think that we are the ones who own anything truly. See, the Torah, the law of God actually tells us who the owner is. And it says in Deuteronomy 10, 14, behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. So everything in your bank account, it belongs to the Lord. It doesn't actually belong to you. You are given those things to steward, but ultimately it is according to his purposes that you ought to steward it. And he has also given you, of course, with that, things to enjoy in life. He has blessed us with the ability to work beforehand or however he is blessing us. And with that, we are allowed to enjoy the blessings of this life. We even see an instruction given to us that in the feast times, God allows us to use what he has given us, the some of the tithe, in fact, in order to rejoice before him. That is why the Messiah drank wine. That is why the Messiah rejoiced at the feasts along with the people. God has given us the ability to rejoice as long as we do so without sin, 
and above reproach in every manner. Next, I would like to speak about the second coming. And this is what James goes on to next. He says in verse seven, be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer awaits the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and latter rains. You also then be patient. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. All right. So he's talking about the coming of the Lord. But as we await his coming to do so in patience, now, I want to submit that there are two dangers of impatience that we need to watch for as we await the second coming specifically. And James gives us the first one in the next verse, and he says, do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. Interesting how he says that in your waiting, be careful that you don't fall into grumbling before because the Messiah is coming and will judge us. Why is it that grumbling is at top of mind for James? I mean, think about it. He's saying like, guys, as you wait, wait for the Lord, be busy with the Lord's business, but don't grumble. It's like it's almost like our Messiah knew that if we got too distracted took our eyes off of him and his coming, we're going to start tearing each other apart. We're going to start grumbling at each other. We're going to start looking at each other, complaining about each other. In fact, it reminds me of the parable of the laborers in the vineyard where the Messiah said, I am coming and I'm calling laborers. And he actually said in Matthew 20, verse 11, he gave Uh, salaries to these laborers, and they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, these last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. And isn't this something that we just like love to do? We just love to look at other people and complain about other people. Like, let's talk less about other people and let's talk more about Yeshua, about Jesus. Let's think less about other people and let's think more about him and in thinking more about him and in proclaiming him and in rejoicing in him. Perhaps all of any issues that are may well be will come into alignment with him as we look to him. But I can tell you that though there is a place for correction, absolutely. And there's a place for iron sharpened on. Absolutely. When our eyes comes off of the Messiah, when it comes at the cost of that, then there is no progress that will be made. The next thing I want to warn you about regarding impatience is that impatience causes pretension. Think about it, because we pretend to know that of the coming that we ought not to pretend to know. In other words, we we say things like this year he's going to come back next year, he's going to come back and we start setting dates, it's fine to understand that there is a season and that there is going to be an increase of things. And we should be awake to see, look for the signs of his coming. Absolutely. Praise the Lord. He's given that to us for a reason. However, when we start pretending to know of things, he said, you will not know. He literally told his disciples when they asked, when is it? And he said, this is not for you to know, but to go into the world and proclaim the gospel. 
setting their eyes back on what is most important and what they should be busy with. He wasn't telling them to set their eyes on setting dates or pretending to know. He said, you will not know. Let's not even pretend to. Because the moment that you start pretending to have ownership over information that God restricted from you, you will start falling into either one of two things, either passivity or escapism. Passivity in that you grow passive. Oh, well, I I don't it doesn't even matter. It's so far away. Who cares? Uh, and, And you grow passive in your faith or you grow an escapist mindset where it's like, oh, it's coming and I just want to get out of this world. God, when is the date? Let me find your second coming. When is it? God, God, oh, come, oh, come, save me from this world. Save me from everything that's happening here. Instead of realizing that he has set you here with a purpose and a commission that you need to walk out to set your eyes on Yeshua and to fish for men. So this is all pride driven, like either the escapist mindset is pride driven because you're trying to escape from something that God has given you to do to be a light or you're passive. And that's pride driven because you do not care about the things that God did tell you to be concerned about and keep your eyes open about to be a light and to keep your eyes open for the signs of the times. The next one I want you to look at is how James now comes and speaks to us about an example that we are to follow. And he says in verse 10, as an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Wow. So he is he is highlighting the story of Job. And in the story of Job, I want to remind you that it really concluded with God coming to say, I am who I am. You will not fully understand me because who are you to even think you could? My purposes and my ways are above your ways. And be in awe of who I am, understand who I am. And let me reveal to you what I do reveal to you, but also understand that which I don't reveal to you. That's which you do not understand, that's which you do not own, that's which you do not control in your life. But that which I am over is what the Lord said. And so we don't always understand God's purpose. Let's not pretend to. This is an an area that people are very uncomfortable with. I want to submit to you. We want to understand. We want to uh, understand like this is a good question. For example, people often ask this question. This is a good question to ask. And I and I cherish this question. It's PD. Why don't everyone get healed? Like, what are we doing wrong in this or that situation? And, And there are things to talk about there, right? There's a bunch of things that we can look at biblically as to biblical reasons why. But you also have to be satisfied with one of those answers that is not something easily that we're satisfied in. And that is that God has his purposes. That God has his will, that there are certain situations where God's way is above ours and he will not reveal why in that moment. One day he will reveal it. But 
You have to be content with not having control and not understanding and content in the purposes and in the trusting of God that even when our understanding fails us, trusting in him instead of when our understanding fails us, blaming him. Because, see, when we pretend to know, we will lean on our understanding of what we think we know and we will pretend that is correct. But then when that fails us and it will, if we put something in our understanding that we don't truly understand, then it's easy to jump to blaming God for it. Instead of from the beginning saying, God, I submit myself in humility to your ways. I submit myself to not understanding. I submit myself to you having control. I submit to what you have ownership of. And I want to know, perhaps, Lord, but even if you don't give me the answers, I will submit. That is what the Lord cherishes instead of someone who also starts pretending, making excuses. If, if we and this also happens, even the topic I just explained, as an example, we say things like we start making up reasons why people didn't get healed when we prayed for them. You know, we, we say, oh, it, it must be because of this and this and that. And we start making stuff up that the Lord has not illuminated as an actual issue because we feel like the need to defend. But sometimes we need to understand that God didn't ask us to defend everything which we don't understand. He asked us to be quiet and know that he is God and when you're quiet and you know that he is God, then he can be God in your life instead of you trying to be God in your life. Because see, when you say I understand, I have control, I you're trying to take it from God. You're trying to rob God of his role without realizing that there are certain things that need to be absolutely surrendered, letting him reveal it, letting him be the one who owns it and controls it. All right. That brings us to our number four, our last pretension for the day that we would like to touch on, and that is about the swearing of oaths. Now, this is going to be pretty profound, brothers and sisters. I, I want to submit that this is something that we find ourselves doing from an early age as children. We have things like pinky promise, if you remember correctly. And then all the way to when we find ourselves in a courtroom and we are asked to put our hand on a Bible and swear on the Bible that we are going to be saying the truth, the truth and nothing but the truth. Let's listen to what James says and Yeshua says about that. James 5, 12. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven, by earth, by any other oath, but let your yes be yes, your no be no that you may not fall under condemnation. All right, so to, to further understand, let's also look at what the Messiah said. Jesus says this in Matthew 5, 33. Again, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black, but let what you say be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Right. So this is really incredible. And I've never actually thought about it this way. 
When you think about what an oath is, like in a courtroom where you put your hand on a Bible and you say, well, now I promise that I'm going to be speaking the truth. And the Messiah speaks to that and he says, let your yes rather be yes and let your no be no for anything more than this comes from evil. So it seems like he is most concerned with where this desire to justify whether you're speaking the truth, where that comes from. You feel like you need to do make an oath in order to justify that. Think about it this way. You say, I swear by heaven or I swear by earth or I swear by Jerusalem or I swear by my own head. But you own none of those things. You don't own heaven or earth or Jerusalem or your own head. You can't even control whether your head goes white, as Yeshua said. But God owns heaven. He owns earth. He owns your head. He owns every hair and he controls and understands all of these things. So when you take these things which aren't yours, and you use it as collateral damage, as the guarantee that you are indeed speaking the truth. Are you not pretending to own these things? And in some strange fashion, we are really robbing God because he is the only one allowed to put his word on these things. He is the only one allowed to put his word on heaven, on earth, on a man's head or on Jerusalem because he owns all of these things. And so I want to submit to you that it should not be needed for us to swear an oath. Our yes or our no should be enough. Let our yes be yes and our no be no, because it should all be evidenced by our track record of credibility. We people should look at us and as ambassadors of the king, they should see and know that we are a people who, when we speak, we always speak the truth. We don't need to put things on the table to guarantee such a thing. But what about Deuteronomy 613, which seems to give us permission to swear by the name of the Lord? It reads, it is the Lord your God you shall fear him you shall serve and by his name you shall swear. The context of this verse indicates that God is saying, if you're going to swear by the name of God, swear by my name. For thereafter, he says, do not worship other gods. But I want to submit to you that even though swearing by the name of God is technically permitted within the Torah, I would still caution against considering to do such a thing. Just as the Messiah said, do not swear an oath at all. Gaunt will take it extremely seriously and will judge you strictly for if you break an oath sworn in his name. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. Taking an oath is not a sin in of itself. Oaths were taken by Jesus and the Apostle Paul. The oaths taken in the scriptures seems to be regarding whether the truth is being told in a moment with God as the witness. Instead of making an oath of doing something in the future, one may not be able to fulfill due to circumstances outside of our control. But the Messiah is against the casual taking of oaths and severely limits the rare need to take oaths at all. It is also important to add that I do not believe that the Messiah 
is discouraging us from carefully approached promises, agreements, vows like wedding vows or contracts with people. These are all very different from swearing an oath on something. Let us be a people known by honesty and truth. Let's not be pretenders of owning things, controlling things, understanding things that we do not own, understand or control. But that is God's. Let's not pretend to understand things of his second coming that he has hidden from us. Let's not pretend with the riches that we may have. Let's not pretend ultimately with what we're going to do tomorrow or what we're going to do the day after that or next month. Let us give him what is his. Let us move in humility. Let us move in satisfaction and contentment and let us let the Lord have his perfect will, even when we don't understand it. And then things will go well with us. Then we will be blessed. And when his second coming arrives finally, as it is at the door, then we will find ourselves coming in confidence before him, not as one condemned, not as one judged. Guys, this is the second last episode of the James series. And next week, as God permits, we're going to publish the last one. If this episode or this series has been a blessing to you, please understand that this is made possible by your support. We need your assistance in continuing to proclaim the gospel. So if you want to partner with us, if the Lord is drawing your heart for such a thing, you can find out more at riseonfire.com.